For the week of Thursday, August 30th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we talk about the case for impeachment with constitutional lawyer Ron Fine. He is the co-author of the new book, The Constitution Demands It, the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump, in which he and his co-authors lay out eight specific counts for impeachment. In our wide-ranging discussion, Fine offers some historical context on the question of impeachment. If you compare the public support for impeaching Trump now, and if you look at the public support for impeaching Richard Nixon at the same stage of the process, there's more support for impeaching Trump now without the first hearing being started than there was for impeaching Richard Nixon when they were well into the Watergate process. Then in the wake of Seattle public school teachers moved to strike on September 5th, we speak again with Summer Stinson. She is co-author and president of the public school advocacy group Washington's Paramount Duty to get her thoughts on how we wound up here and what might be a way forward. That's all coming up. So stay with us. The question of impeachment is one that has come up virtually since the day Trump took office with charges that he was in violation of what is called the emoluments clause in the Constitution. Uh, And in many ways, the case has only gotten stronger with every passing day, particularly over the last couple of weeks. Ron Fine is a constitutional lawyer and the legal director for Free Speech for People, a nonprofit that was founded in the wake of the Citizens United ruling. And he's laid out eight charges in a book that he co-authored called The Constitution. Constitution demands it, the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump. And he joins us now. Ron Fine, welcome. It's a pleasure to join you. So, you know, in the book, as the title says, you have the case for impeaching Trump. And I, I do want to get to that in detail in a moment. But I'd, I think I'd like to start by talking about impeachment as you specifically read the framers' intentions on it. It is prescribed in the Constitution, as we know. But you see that the point of impeachment is not to punish, but to protect the body politics. So let's start there. Explain what you mean by that. A lot of people understand impeachment as something that would happen at the end of a criminal prosecution or criminal investigative process. And that certainly can happen. But the purpose of impeachment is actually to protect the country. And a Supreme Court justice who wrote an influential early commentary on the Constitution in in the 19th century uh, by the name of Joseph Story uh, put it really well. He said that impeachment is not so much designed to punish an offender as to secure the state. The point of impeachment is that somebody represents an ongoing threat to the, the republic, and that's why we remove them from office. Yeah. I mean, it's it's actually rather ironic that uh, there is a clip that has been circulating around of Lindsey Graham when he was a congressman making virtually the same point about the impeachment proceedings regarding Bill Clinton, right? Yeah, and I think Lindsey Graham was absolutely right when he said that. He said, and this is 1999, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he said the purpose of impeachment is not to punish, but to cleanse the office was his, his phrase. And I, I think that's an important point when we talk about Trump, because we're not talking about somebody who committed some sort of one-time violation that's never going to happen again. This is not a, a single one-off incident. What we have here are patterns of conduct that are not only continuing, but getting worse. 
Well, you're sort of uh, getting into uh, my next question naturally, and that is what you talk about in the book as being the threshold for impeachment, which, as prescribed again in the Constitution, is treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, Treason and bribery, I think it can be fairly argued, have already been committed by Trump. Uh, But you assert in the book that uh, high crimes and misdemeanors don't necessarily have to be criminal offenses. Uh, You cite, among other people, Alexander Hamilton's writings on this. So help us understand why high crimes and misdemeanors do not necessarily have to be violations of federal code. The phrase high crimes and misdemeanors leads a lot of people to think in terms of criminal statutes, but it can actually be broader than that. And the framers didn't invent the phrase. They took it from the history of impeachments in England, where parliament had impeached officials for hundreds of years using the threshold of high crimes and misdemeanors. That was the term they used in England for things that were not actually what we would call now crimes, that the terms didn't mean the same thing then as they are now in common usage. And if there was any doubt that the framers intended high crimes and misdemeanors to include things that are broader than uh, just what we would call violations of, say, federal criminal statutes, It would be dispelled by the fact that the framers in the constitutional debates actually give examples of impeachable offenses that were not crimes. Such as? Such as abuse of the pardon power. Abuse of the pardon power is one of the grounds that we've actually laid against Trump. And in the constitutional debates about it, uh, there was a, a debate between George Mason, who was an opponent of the Constitution, and James Madison, who's the father of the Constitution and, and later became a U.S. president. And George Mason said uh, that the president shouldn't even have the pardon power because it would be subject to abuse and he could pardon people close to him, maybe people like Michael Cohen, Paul Manafort. <laughs> Sheriff uh, Joe Arpaio, Dinesh D'Souza, e- others. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I've become a monarch. And James Madison said if he does that, then he can be impeached. But obviously abusing the pardon power, that's not a violation of any, you'll find no federal criminal statute that directly prohibits that. It's an abuse of a power that the president has, but shouldn't be allowed to abuse. And that's that's just one of several examples where the framers said that. But it's not just what the framers said. We also have history of Congress impeaching officials, and it's mostly federal judges more than presidents, but Congress has impeached federal judges or or started impeachment proceedings against them, again, many times for things that weren't crimes as we would now understand them. I'm going to want to revisit that point in just a moment. But so let's go ahead and get into the book and the eight charges that you lay out. Um, And a few of these are are things that we've heard before, the the violation of the emoluments clause, as I mentioned, um, obstruction of justice, specifically in the firing of James Comey, uh, you just touched on uh, abusing the pardon power. Uh, Another charge is advocating illegal violence violence and undermining equal protection of the laws. Give us some examples of how and where Trump has transgressed here. Absolutely. And and this is one of the grounds where, you know, with some of these grounds, you can point to something that uh, either a previous president uh, was charged with, like Richard Nixon, or you can find some clear constitutional precedent that this is an impeachable offense. Here, there isn't, but that's partly because no president has ever done what Trump has done here. So, If you go back to the campaign, Trump's rhetoric the entire time has been advocating violence. During his campaign rallies, he urged his supporters to beat up 
protesters, and he encouraged a, a level of uh, violence through his rhetoric that actually had a measurable effect. There have been studies on what they call the Trump effect on how during his campaign, when he made a, an appearance at a rally in a particular city, there would be an increase in violent incidents and, and in racial incidents in that particular city as compared to before, after, and other cities. But a lot of people said, well, once he's president, that will quiet down. And it didn't. Since he's been in office, he has urged, for example, he urged police officers to be rough with people that they arrest. Yeah. So he's basically encouraging police brutality. And of course, we know what happened with Charlottesville where he talked about the, the very fine people on both sides and encouraged that sort of racial violence. Again, he, he didn't specifically say, go out and drive a car into a crowd and you know murder a protester, but that's, that's not necessary. The point is with his rhetoric, he, he inspired and incited. And, and those are just a small number of examples that when you put them all together, add up to a pattern of violating his obligation to take care that the laws be faithfully executed and to ensure equal protection of the laws. You know, you also cite uh, undermining freedom of the press. And of, of course, freedom of press is uh, it's, it's in the, the First Amendment. And I'm wondering, is the violation of something that is, that is codified in the First Amendment, does that give it special weight uh, in this regard? Well, you know, what's interesting about the way that Trump undermines the freedom of the press is that he hasn't instituted, you know, direct censorship. It's right. not like he's, you know, banned the New York Times or something. But He'd like to. <laughs> I'm sure he would love to ban, uh, you know, CNN, fake news CNN, as he right. calls it. Um, but what he is doing is is following a pattern that's been set by strongman rulers in other countries that have slipped from democracy into authoritarianism. So it's a pattern that we've seen from from Turkey, from Venezuela, some of the Eastern European countries, where constant attacks on the media have a chilling impact. And it's not just his, his rhetoric, uh, you know, constantly calling the news you know, the fake news and saying you can't believe anything they say. He's also either threatened or tried to use the levers of government to punish the critical press. And as you say, the freedom of the press is enshrined in the First Amendment. It's sort of a central American value because some of the other freedoms are obviously vitally important, but you can imagine democracy going on even if those uh, values are, are threatened. But without a full and robust press, uh, the, the institutions of democracy themselves are threatened. And in fact, the Senate actually issued a resolution saying that attacks on on the press are a threat to our democratic institutions. You know, the, I will just mention uh, the other charges uh, from the book. You also include uh, directing law enforcement to investigate and prosecute political adversaries, uh, recklessly endangering the world and the nation by threatening nuclear war. Um, and so, again, I, I, it is a matter of debate as to whether these institute high crimes and misdemeanors in and of themselves. But a point that you make in the book is that all of these things taken together form, quote, a pattern that turns individually troubling acts into a dangerous abuse of office. This is something that you mentioned earlier. And, you know, I, I just want to play devil's advocate and ask, isn't this more of a matter for voters to determine? You know, impeachment was set up in the Constitution to handle a case where a president was of such danger that it, it couldn't wait for voters to, to handle it. But also the flip side of that is 
I don't know if we want to say that voters can ratify um, gross violations of uh, the Constitution and, and fundamental rights. I think that the key issue is that Congress is the entity that the Constitution entrusts to put the ultimate check on the president. And to say that, well, we're just going to wait until election, you know, obviously for a second term president, that's not even an option. But even for a first term president who, who is going to face reelection, that exposes the country to a degree of danger that we try to make the case uh, is, is too much. It's, it's too great a risk for the country to, to take on uh, the ongoing threats to our democracy uh, and, and potentially to safety of the world uh, if somebody insults him on Twitter and he, he starts a, a nuclear war as a result of that. Yeah. Well, and, and of course, you, you'll get no argument from me and you're not going to get any argument from listeners. But again, just sort of following this through and even transmitting forward, if high crimes and misdemeanors are not defined concretely, does it leave in your mind the possibility that any Congress that could be hostile to a sitting president might be moved to drop articles of impeachment? I mean, I think it's fair to speculate that, say, if this particular Congress uh, had had a Hillary Clinton presidency, they likely would have found uh, grounds to drop articles of impeachment. And so I guess my question is moving forward post-Trump, do you see the impeachment of Trump under the high crimes and misdemeanors bar being something that could be subject to, say, abuse by a Congress that just simply doesn't like the actions of, of a sitting president? Yeah, I mean, there, there is this this view that uh, Gerald Ford, when he was in Congress, said um, when he was actually looking to impeach a Supreme Court justice, where he, he said an impeachable offense is whatever the House of Representatives decided is at a given moment of, of time. Uh, and you can imagine hypothetically as a, as a theoretical case that there might be a Congress that would do that. Um, we haven't seen that happen. Um, and the, I think the threshold of high crimes and misdemeanors is a useful one. It's, it's not to say when I say that high crimes and misdemeanors don't have to be federal crimes, that that doesn't mean that just anything can be uh, a high crime and misdemeanor. There, they have to be serious offenses. Uh, one of the constitutional scholars who wrote about impeachment during the uh, Nixon era, I think, uh, described it as something that was plainly wrong to a person of honor regardless of words on the statute books. So it's a mix of law and politics. And if Congress takes its job seriously, uh, then they will insist on a minimum threshold. And, and one thing we do know from the constitutional debates is that uh, the, the framers of the Constitution considered at one point whether a president should be impeachable for what they called maladministration, basically meaning, you know, just like being bad at, at his right. job. Right. Right. And they they took that away. They deleted that because um, the framers felt that would mean that the president would serve at the pleasure of Congress. And so everyone agrees that sort of ordinary bad presidenting is not a ground for impeachment, you know, I don't know mishandling the economy, that type of thing. That really is a matter for the voters. The, the threshold is certainly higher than that. And there are many things that, you know, people get very upset about against Trump, rightly so. Um, that we haven't included in this book because we felt that they did fall more in the category of, of maladministration. Uh, but you know, in this book, we're trying to make the case of why these offenses do rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. And quite frankly, if any other president does this in the future, I think they should be held to the same account. 
You know, this sort of gets into uh, what we were talking about earlier in terms of the high crimes and misdemeanors not necessarily needing to rise to the level of a, a criminal offense. Uh, and one of the final charges that you raise uh, that would absolutely be a clear violation is conspiring to solicit and then conceal illegal foreign aid to a presidential campaign by a foreign adversary, which, of course, is the subject of Robert Mueller's ongoing investigation. And what you're hearing from a lot of members in Congress, particularly Democratic members of Congress who are up for re-election, is that they're saying they want the Mueller investigation to be complete before they talk about impeachment. You disagree. Uh, so talk about why. I think what's important to understand is precisely because the purposes of impeachment are, are different from that of federal criminal prosecutions. That's why these are separate processes. And what is important to understand is that there are some technical issues that will face the special counsel uh, that are not relevant to impeachment. And, and I'll give you a, a couple of examples. Um, he has obviously he's only focused on uh, really two of the eight grounds that we've mentioned. So it, it goes without saying that six of the eight grounds that we talked about, for example, emoluments violations or abuse of the pardon power, those aren't part of his investigation because they're they're not federal crimes at all, right. and they're not within the scope of his uh, of his appointment. But then the other thing is that he's got to face some technical limits on, for example, what he can prove in federal court. So as an example, uh, trial lawyers need to deal with the federal rules of evidence, which are rules that address what types of evidence can be presented to a jury. And there's reasons, various reasons, sometimes good or bad, why relevant evidence cannot be presented in court because it's not consistent with, let's say, the rule against admitting hearsay. Uh, this has no bearing on Congress. And if Congress has relevant evidence, then it doesn't need to worry about whether Robert Mueller thinks he could persuade a unanimous jury of 12 you know, random citizens of, uh, of D.C. Or, or New York or wherever um, that he could uh, bring charges you know, at the level of proof beyond a reasonable doubt in line with the federal rules of, of evidence. So we've presented enough evidence in this chapter for Congress to start the process of hearings. That doesn't mean that uh, they might not get you know, additional evidence from the Mueller investigation. The Mueller investigation is basically conducted in secret. Uh, congressional hearings can be conducted in the open. Congress has basically all the same investigative authorities that Mueller does. So it can uh, call witnesses, it can subpoena testimony, documents. And if Congress was doing its job, it could be moving in parallel with the Mueller investigation. And then his decision as to who to charge for which crimes could happen in parallel or separate from Congress's question about the big picture issue is not the letter of the law of the federal campaign finance statutes that uh, Trump may have violated, but rather if there's enough evidence to suggest that the president has conspired with operatives of a foreign government uh, to illegally gain assistance in an election, that's a, a real serious concern, regardless of what Mueller thinks about whether or not it's uh, criminally prosecutable. I know that you and your co-authors believe that Congress should be uh, – they should be introducing articles of impeachment now. They should be holding hearings. But we recognize the fact that this is not a Congress that is not only going to not do that, uh, they're also not going to hold Trump 
to account on virtually all of the charges, on any of the charges, really, that, that you mention in the book. And now I know that you are a, a 501c3, and so you're, you're, you're going to have to kind of be careful about the way that you answer this. But, and it is a political question. Uh, but there has been some debate about whether or not Democratic candidates should run on the issue of impeachment, because if, and God willing, when the Democrats take back the House, there's then the real possibility that articles of impeachment could be introduced. The Democratic base seems to want it, uh, but it polls less well among independents, and the Democratic leadership is counseling candidates to avoid the issue. Do you feel that this is a fraught issue for Democrats, that they uh, should or should not be running on the issue of impeachment when it's so important? As, as you say, I'm you know not able or in a position to give you know advice on on anybody on how to campaign, win or lose their election. But what I will say is that impeachment is on the ballot uh, for both parties, whether they want it to be or not. It's a, an issue that is high on voters' minds. Uh, polls show it to be uh, you know fairly high as, as a priority among many voters. And one thing to note is that. Uh, right now, public support for impeaching the president is a little bit less than half. Depending on which poll you look at, it's you know in the high 40s, the mid 40s. It's less than 50 percent, no doubt. But if you compare the public support for impeaching Trump now, at a point where Congress has done nothing, nothing, they haven't started any hearings whatsoever, and if you look at the public support for impeaching Richard Nixon, at the same stage of the process or even at a later stage of the process. There's more support for impeaching Trump now without the first hearing being started than there was for impeaching Richard Nixon when they were well into the Watergate process. Interesting. And in fact, the support for impeaching Richard Nixon didn't cross 50% until after the House Judiciary Committee had already approved articles of impeachment against him. So I think that you know the mixture of law and politics here is important because there'll be times when the politics predominate, but there'll be times when the law and the facts predominate. And when hearings start, it acts, and again, Nixon is the model for this, it acts as a national education process. It will bring in people of both parties, Democrats and Republicans, who maybe haven't paid attention to all the allegations, maybe they've been you know, too focused on other things on, on cable news, to find out if they're sober, serious hearings that show members of Congress you know, hard at work taking it seriously, not making it into a, a circus, uh, at getting the facts out and debating whether certain offenses are or are not impeachable, and that is for Congress to decide, that will be a national education process, and I think it would bring the country along, Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Lawrence Tribe actually wrote a piece against the bringing of articles of impeachment precisely because he feels that it would be uh, inflicting undue trauma on, on the country right now. And uh, I, I'm wondering what your, your thoughts are on that. We didn't have to endure that under Nixon. He resigned. Uh, we did have to endure that under Clinton. Uh, Clinton's numbers actually rose uh, when he was impeached but not convicted. I'm wondering what you make of all of that, particularly Lawrence Tribe's uh, assertion that this would be traumatizing for the country. I have great respect for Professor Tribe, as, as should everyone who, who works in this area. And uh, I, I enjoyed very much his uh, recent book, uh, which is sort of about the generalities of impeachment, not specifically about Trump. And, and one of the points that he makes in his book is that uh, starting an impeachment process has downsides 
for the country. But on the other hand, there are cases where not impeaching a president has downsides for the country. And it, it, there might be some trauma that comes with impeaching the president. There's a lot of trauma that comes with not starting the process. And, and we're, we're starting to experience some of that trauma. Some people are experiencing quite a lot of trauma, and it is likely to get worse. Well, we're going to be talking about that actually next week, listeners, so stay tuned uh, for that. Um, so I will just ask you, um, sort of transmitting forward, if Trump is successfully impeached and convicted, what does the Constitution say about the terms of removal? And the reason why I ask this is because Trump seems like the sort of individual who may possibly refuse to leave office. What does what the Constitution prescribe there? Well, that that is actually an argument for impeachment. The very fact that Trump <laughs> is, does seem like the person who might refuse to leave office um, late makes that the case for impeachment uh, in, all, in all in one little vignette of, you know, the Senate voting to uh, convict and him, you know, barricading himself in the White House and having a, a showdown with U.S. Marshals or something. I mean, that would be a constitutional crisis. You know, people say, well, impeachment is a constitutional crisis. Impeachment is following the procedures of the Constitution. Yes, yeah, you if say, Trump actually, were... uh, the person who wrote the foreword to your book, John Nichols, says uh, that impeachment is not a constitutional crisis. It's the cure for a constitutional crisis. That's right. And uh, I think, you know, if we can envision a scenario with the president, you know, refusing to leave office, I, I think what I hope would happen uh, is that uh, Vice President Pence and the, the leaders of the House and Senate would come to him and, and say, you know, don't make a spectacle of this. Um, you can leave with, you know, some measure of dignity um, and not have to be brought out by armed guards uh, and, and avoid the, that type of scene. Um, but it, Yet again, I, is, 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 I think, a mental picture that is, is very cheering to the minds of a lot of listeners. But anyway, please continue. Yeah, um, I, I would like to see him walk out under his own power um, and, and face For the whatever. good of the country, ultimately. Yeah. yeah, for the good of the country. Exactly. And in fact, you know, as we say uh, in the book, um, it's fine with us if he resigns. Um, we don't feel the need to, to go through the entire congressional process. Uh, Richard Nixon resigned from office after the Judiciary Committee approved articles of impeachment, so he was never technically even impeached by the House um, because he, you know, he saw the, the writing on the wall. You know, the procedure specified in the Constitution is that the House has a majority vote to impeach, which is really laying the charges, and then the Senate has a vote uh, to convict, um, and that does need to be by a, a higher threshold, by, by two-thirds. But uh, it, the Constitution says that it shall, shall be removed from office uh, on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, it does not say how they will be removed from office and, and whether that would require um, armed law enforcement agents uh, extracting the president from you know, a locked up, barricaded Oval Office. I hope it wouldn't come to that. Uh, you know, when you wrote this book, uh, I imagine that you had to know that you were writing it in a very fluid environment. And of course, since then, since the publication, a number of things have happened, including uh, Michael Cohen implicating Trump in two felonies in open court, and then the conviction of Paul Manafort. Uh, we're getting into uncharted territory here, and there's there's a lot that's unclear around this. And so I, I hope that you'll just indulge a couple questions here in your capacity as a, as a constitutional expert, because listeners have asked a few questions regarding what's going on. 
on. Um, you know, and you talked about this a little bit in an op-ed that you and the two co-authors of your book, John Bonifaz and Ben Clements, wrote for the New York Daily News on August 29th regarding Michael Cohen. And you say that looking at Cohen testifying that Trump ordered him to use campaign finances to pay off uh, two women that Trump had affairs with simply as a criminal matter to be resolved is missing the whole point of impeachment. Now, you've talked about this a little bit earlier, but I'd love for you to expand on a few of the points, a few of the other points that you made in that piece. Yeah, I, I think the, the issue with what happened here is that if people get mired in looking at campaign violations as a, a technical matter, um, they might miss the, the big picture, which is that the, the president directed uh, Cohen, who uh, until recently was his personal lawyer, um, to not only basically you know, cheat in the election by making these um, illegal campaign payments, but also the Trump organization helped conceal it. And when you put this picture together, what we see is that the, the president is uh, really, it shows his disregard for the rule of law from the outset, from the get-go. And if he was willing to do that uh, in 2016, when he didn't have some control over the apparatus of law enforcement, um, didn't have the ability to punish his adversaries and critics the way that he does now, uh, then he's only the more dangerous nowadays. And I think that we're going to continue to hear new revelations. There will be new evidence about things that have already happened, and there will be new things that will happen. And when we put these all together, the, the key point, to, as I said, is that it's not like this is a one-off violation where the president did one thing impeachable once and then repented of his ways and forever afterwards stuck to uh, the Constitution and the law. <laughs> this is a case of a president who is going further and further uh, off the course charted out by the Constitution. You know, it does beg the question, and point taken on all of that, uh, but the fact that this is a court matter makes one wonder, and, and Robert Reich has, has discussed this in an online piece, that if Trump is proven in court to have conspired to have fixed the 2016 election, that de facto makes that election fraudulent. And he calls not for just impeachment, but for the annulment of Trump's presidency. And there is, of course, no mention of this in the Constitution. But do you agree First of all, do you agree that annulment is something that the Constitution would allow for? The Constitution definitely does not provide for uh, what I, I understand um, uh, Professor Reich to be talking about in, in terms of annulment. I mean, to the extent that he has been president, um, the actions that you know were undertaken by the president uh, in the course of his duties uh, would not ordinarily be reversible uh, upon impeachment. Now, there there is a... Uh, a, a missed opportunity that if the um, Congress had gotten started on this when it should have, which is to say, uh, you know, immediately after he took office, uh, we might have had a lot more uh, information that could have enabled impeachment to have occurred before the 2018 election. And believe it or not, the principle that um, when the uh, presidency, let me back up for a sec, I should say, we don't know whether Vice President Mike Pence uh, has been or, or will be implicated in any of this wrongdoing. Um, and we do not, in this book or elsewhere, 
uh, claim that there's a case for impeaching Vice President Pence. But we also don't rule it out because he was obviously involved in the campaign. He was also the supervisor of the transition when many of the uh, key incidents occurred. So it is possible at the end of the day that we'll find that Pence has also committed impeachable offenses. And then that's a really interesting question um, for Congress to, to inquire is whether the, the sort of pain of uh, you know, displacing uh, one president through impeachment um, is uh, worth uh, repeating. And a lot of people do feel justifiably that if the offense was um, conspiring to illegally influence the election, uh, that it isn't quite right for Mike Pence to to then, you know, enjoy the benefits of, of Trump's impeachment. But at the moment, we have not set forth, um, because we don't believe there's publicly available, uh, any case uh, that would suggest that that Mike Pence should be impeached and removed. Yeah, I mean it's it's very interesting because annulment could potentially include uh, getting rid of Trump's executive orders, even getting rid of his cabinet. Uh, again, uncharted territory here. Um, you know, I, I will just ask one last legal question, and it is the eight hundred pound gorilla. And I'm sure you know what is coming. But uh, since Trump is now an, an unindicted co-conspirator in two felonies, uh, which would most certainly be prosecuted if he weren't in office. We have heard legal experts differ on the question of whether a sitting president can be indicted, mostly because it's just it's never been done. What's your take? This is something that the Constitution does not explicitly answer. And I should say at the outset that there are people of good faith and solid standing on both sides of this question as to whether uh, a sitting president can be indicted or whether they are you know, immune from indictment until they're impeached and removed. So anyone who's claiming that there's perfect certainty on this is being misleading. I, I think that the better view, though, is that a sitting president can be indicted. And part of the reason for that is that some criminal offenses are not impeachable. So we talked about how high crimes and misdemeanors includes things that are not crimes. By the same token, it doesn't include all crimes. There are things that are criminal, but that are not grounds for impeachment. So, you know, let's say the president, you know, um, minor tax uh, evasion charges, or I don't know, if he goes drunk driving um, and, you know, commits DUI or something like that. Very few people would say that's a ground for impeachment. Yeah. Uh, and some of those things have statutes of limitations. So to say that a president could not be uh, indicted while he remains in office would mean that he could basically escape liability forever for crimes, either because they're not grounds for impeachment or because uh, the Congress chooses not to impeach him. He might forever escape all liability for that type of crime, even if the, it was a crime committed before he took office, a, a crime that occurred you know, during the campaign or even years earlier. And I don't think that's structurally a sound result of the, that you get a forever get out of jail free card if you manage to make your way into the Oval Office. Well, you know, there was talk about uh, prosecuting Nixon after he left office. And of course, uh, you know, Gerald Ford's blanket pardon there just made redundant all of that. Um, would you personally like to see uh, Trump prosecuted if he leaves office without being indicted? Would you see a situation where you would like to see him uh, face criminal prosecution for some of the things that he's done? Now, this is a really interesting uh, question for which the, the Ford-Nixon president is a useful one. I mean, as we were talking about earlier, when 
to the vice president, Mike Pence, becomes president after impeachment uh, and removal of the president, he has the opportunity to take that in a lot of directions. So he could, you know, as you say, like reverse Trump's executive orders and fire all of his cabinet officials. Um, he could also say, I'm going to, you know, keep that ship going straight. In terms of the pardon power, there's no question that a somebody who became president after the impeachment and removal or resignation of the president um, would have the power to pardon that president. Uh, and I, I don't think that would count as an abuse of power. Uh, I think that would be a, a legitimate use of it. I would advocate, however, um, that Pence not do that. I think that Ford's pardon of Nixon uh, cut off really uh, exposing uh, accountability. And part of the problem was he, he uh, pardoned him before charges were even brought. Right. And perhaps if you know it, it had gone further down the process and there was a trial and a conviction, and then he said, you know, in light of his service to the country for years, I don't know, maybe commute his sentence or – We might have some precedent him. to work with here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, think it, I think he cut it off far too early. Um, I, I'm not saying that Pence wouldn't have the power to do that just as Gerald Ford did. Uh, and that's obviously a, a political decision for him to use. And, and, you know, reasonable people can disagree on this. I think it would be better uh, to allow the criminal process uh, and, and all legal processes, for that matter, against Trump to proceed. But uh, again, I, I can see how other people might not agree with that. Well, I thank you for indulging us on all of that. So, you know, in the book, you say that there are things that we can do to help along the cause of impeachment. Um, voting, of course, is one of the biggest things that we can do. And we uh, sort of beat our listeners over the head uh, regularly with that. Um, but uh, I, I always like to end on some form of action whenever possible. And so uh, with your organization, Free Speech for People, what do you recommend that uh, people can do uh, along these lines? We have a, a couple of steps that we're recommending. Uh, the first one is I would love for people to read the book, um, whether from their local bookstore, from the library, online. And the reason for that is that there are a lot of misconceptions going on about impeachment, partly driven by leadership in Congress. And for people to be able to have this type of conversation that you and I are having right now with their friends, family, and neighbors, and to say, no, there actually are grounds for impeachment hearings right now, and to be able to refute some of the uh, common arguments, like we have to wait for the Mueller investigation or something like that, for, for people to have that confidence to make that argument with their friends, with their family, and with their member of Congress, to, to you know, call a congressional switchboard, uh, especially if their member is on the Judiciary Committee of the House, but even if not. And again, to advocate with letters to the editor of the local newspaper uh, and, and other ways of, of getting this message out. We're, we're in early stages of this. We're still at the point of trying to um, you know, to build the movement and the support. Um, we're not suggesting that Congress would hold a final vote on articles of impeachment tomorrow, but what we need to do is convince enough Americans that this is something that Congress can do. The other thing that people can do is that they can visit our website that we've set up specially for this effort, and that's impeachmentproject.org. And from there, uh, you can look at some of the tools and action items that are available even now. But I think step one uh, is to familiarize yourself with the arguments and be a confident advocate. 
Well, we certainly appreciate your time here in helping us uh, understand the issue uh, of impeachment uh, a little more clearly. And I will certainly recommend the book to readers. The book is The Constitution Demands It, The Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump on Melville House Press. Ron Fine, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So on Tuesday night, teachers in Seattle voted for a strike if talks with Seattle public schools officials don't result in a tentative contract by the first day of school, which is on September 5th. And joining us to talk about this is our friend Summer Stinson, who is co-founder and president of Washington's Paramount Duty, a grassroots group of parents and allies advocating for the state to amply fund public schools. Hello, Summer. Hello, Stefan. Uh, So, you know, in an op-ed that you wrote for The Stranger on Tuesday, you pointed out that there have been teacher strikes across the country uh, recently in red states like uh, Oklahoma, Arizona, West Virginia. And you addressed the question of why we here in Democrat-dominated Washington and also in a very blue city like Seattle, why we would be on the verge of a teacher strike. Uh, The state legislature is now in compliance with the latest McCleary ruling, which means that the legislature is funding state schools to the tune of almost a billion dollars. But you say in the article, quote, wealthy interests, Republicans and some elected Democrats are trying to convince districts not to give teachers the money they deserve. So so what's going on here? I think that what's happening is you see that what's become apparent and much more transparent for us in the public uh, is that the deal that was struck back in 2017 for how to fund our public schools and shifting, or some call it the levy swipe, it truly is, shifting local levies to the state and then having the state then give back the districts that money, that it's now turned a spotlight on the fact that truly districts are not funded at the levels they need to be and that there's many districts that are winners and losers in the new state system of funding And that many school districts, including Tacoma, would be better off had nothing happened. And many smaller rural districts that even though they were expected to possibly come out ahead um, and get more money back towards those districts, because of the regionalization factor and because they have lower costs of living, they're not able to compete with nearby bigger districts. Well, so, so you we, say re- regionalization, meaning specifically that some schools are being prioritized over others? Is that, is that what you mean by that? They've regionalized teacher pay based on average housing costs in various regions. And so we face this a lot um, over in, say, rural Washington in the eastern part of the state where larger areas are able to pay more for their school teachers than nearby smaller, more rural districts. And so the rural districts are also seeing that they are going to possibly lose teachers to the next or larger school districts that can pay more. Well, you talk about that disparity happening in Seattle, where you say that uh, a lot of uh, teachers in some lower income neighborhoods may ultimately leave because of the funding issue. And it's very apparent that uh, when you contrast it with neighborhoods like Shoreline, which is a much wealthier area, they're getting a lot more money. Right. They're getting more money. And what Shoreline's already done is give a very significant raise to their teachers. And so and I'll use a very specific example, but I think this example um, 
is what is occurring generally around the state. My One of my son's teachers from last year, very dedicated teacher, amazing person, he was working not just one job during the school year, but two jobs during the school year. Mm. I went to the community center for another community event and saw him there. He greeted me very nicely and he was working at the community center and I asked him why. And he said, it's really hard to be able to make ends meet in Seattle. And this is what he has to do to be able to live in Seattle. And then he also works a summertime job. Right. Well, obviously, the cost of living is so much greater in Seattle. And it so- is, but he lives 15 blocks or so. I don't know exactly where he lives. I don't like to ask teachers that. But he lives very, very close to the shoreline line because I'm up here in North, North Seattle. So he lives pretty far north in Seattle to be able to afford to live in Seattle. And so it's it would not be much for him to have to then, instead of traveling tens of blocks down uh, south to the school that he teaches at, instead just drive a little north to, to Shoreline where they have already given their teachers very significant raises. And, and so Seattle then raises. would ultimately lose him. And, and, yes. and possibly other good quality teachers exactly. as a result. What we're what we're really facing is Seattle was just named today as the third most expensive city for housing for uh, house home prices in the country. I think it would surprise some listeners to find out that it's third and not first or second. <laughs> uh, well, San Francisco's first, San, San Jose's second, and then Seattle. Well, and so we have, you know, we, I think most people, it would not surprise us, especially in the Puget Sound area to broaden it beyond Seattle. In the Puget Sound area, we have an ever escalating um cost of living here. And it's really gone up so sharply in the last two, three years, probably over the last decade, but definitely over the last three years, you can really feel the difference. And so that's why you see uh, teachers uh, potentially getting ready to strike because they, they really can't live on these wages. Um, to be clear, the, the money is there to pay teachers. I mean, the, the, the billion dollars of McCleary funding means that the money technically exists. But you say in your piece, thanks solely to the legislature's actions, districts like Seattle Public Schools face near immediate deficits of more than $40 million a year. Explain how that is. Well, first of all, tell us what other districts uh, are being hit around the state. And then tell us how, how it's possible that they can be facing deficits of $40 million a year. Well, many other districts are being uh, hit across the state. There were when there was a op-ed piece by I think four uh, rural district uh, superintendents in the um, the Spokesman uh, uh, Herald out in Spokane. Yes, out in Spokane uh, just last week. And then uh, there are many districts on strike down in southwest Washington, which we can talk about in a minute. And then Tacoma is another one very close to home that the superintendent there has said that Tacoma schools would be better off had nothing had the legislature done nothing. Um, for McCleary, because what the legislature did, and I think this was really kind of tricky at the time, and this was a bill, I don't know if everybody remembers, but this was a bill that was passed with like 24 hours notice, the deal was struck, and then it was part of the budget. It was a separate bill, 2242, on education funding, but then it was also relied upon the passage of the budget, and the budget, I think, was 400 plus pages long, and legislators had less than 24 hours to review it. So it was almost like a writer read it. in the budget. Oh, it was, it was crazy. I mean, it was, it went so fast and so furious 
And what it did is it built in two cuts um, that are coming up on the horizon. The first one is really soon, um, December uh, 31st, 2018. So because the the cut is going to happen in the middle of a school year, it wouldn't affect school districts until 2019-2020. But that is another levy cliff. Uh, All the levies for the school districts will drop significantly as part of this deal that was struck um, by the legislature at the last minute to avert a state shutdown back in 2017. So there will be a huge drop in what the school districts can uh, ask the public for through their levies. And so that will affect the 2019-2020 school year. Okay. And then in 2023-24, the state property tax lid will resume. So the legislature legislature back in 2017, when they voted this plan in, said for four years, we will get rid of this um, property tax lid. And the property tax lid was one of those Tim Iman thought, thought up <laughs> and pushed on the public. Uh, I believe the uh, the court. <laughs> well, tell us specifically what a you and I talked about uh, the property tax issue in yes. regards to all of this a few shows back. Tell us specifically what is meant by a property tax lid. It's supposed to keep the, the and, and I'm playing devil's advocate here. It's supposed to keep the property taxes in check here in Washington state. And the hard thing with any sort of lid on taxation here in Washington state is we have a very, we have very narrow pools of money or pools of taxation. And that has in part to do with the fact that we don't have a state income tax. We don't have a state income tax. We don't have capital gains tax. We have 715 tax loopholes. We have more than any other state other than New York of our tax uh, tax breaks that we give to businesses. If we didn't give all those tax breaks to businesses, our state would collect $30 billion more. And that is how Washington's paramount duty would like to see schools get funded in the state. Yes, absolutely. We should be taxing those who can afford it and have been really skating by on what is actually corporate welfare or welfare for the 1%. While we are, we have been asking through property taxes, our least able to pay, our working families and our poor, to be able to bear the brunt of paying for all these necessary services, including public education. Well, I should mention that you had an informal meeting with uh, Governor Inslee uh, a month or so ago in which he said that uh, if more Democrats get elected to the legislature, that he would help pass a capital gains tax in order to help fund uh, education, right? Yes, we were at um, a conference together and he was talking on how to, I I think the term was Trump proof your state. (laughs) And so my concern was and still is that Washington state has the most regressive tax structure in the entire country. It's upside down. Our poor and our working families pay such a higher percentage of their income towards taxation that um, while our mega businesses and our top 1% get the benefit of all these 715 tax breaks. And so to me, that sounds more, unfortunately, like a Trump budget 
and a Trump tax plan than it does sounding like we're Trump proofing our state. And you'd like to see all of those or many of those loopholes closed. And we actually had a discussion about this one of the last times that we spoke. And the concern is among business advocates in the state that we would lose business if we began to close some of those capital gains taxes uh, loopholes. But your response was, look at San Jose. Yes, yes. I mean, the second most, I mean, look at the first most expensive housing uh, place in the world and the in the country right now, San Francisco and San Jose. California has a tax on millionaires. And no one's leaving um, or they don't no seem to, right. the businesses certainly <laughs> don't seem to and be leaving. It has, it has less tax breaks than we offer our businesses here. Well, so the the legislature is out of session until 2019, and so they're not going to be able to address this uh, potential strike in the short term. How would you like to see the strike averted? I I would like to see the strike averted by Seattle Public Schools um, paying teachers what they're worth. A teacher deserves to be able to live in the community where they teach. I, I I I think it's important for us to realize that here in our area, we live with some of the wealthiest people in the world, not just in our state, not just in our country, but in the world. And yet also Seattle Public Schools has one in 12 kids that are homeless. And we need to start deciding as a state where we value people, public education, housing and healthcare for children, for families, for working people. We absolutely need to give teachers what they're due. They are the backbone of our schools. They're the backbone of our communities. And they cannot afford to live in Seattle right now. Well, as it says in the state's founding documents, funding education is Washington's paramount duty, which is where the name of your group comes from. But Summer Stenson, thank you so much, as always, for joining us and helping explain this. Thank you. And uh, good to talk with you again. I'm so glad for all the work you're doing. And before we go, you know, I I promised for the last few weeks that we would be talking about upcoming canvassing opportunities. And because uh, I like to fancy myself a man of his word, here we go. Uh, So as you know, we have three flippable districts that we are focusing on. Washington's third, where Carolyn Long is running against Jamie Herrera Butler. Washington's fifth, where Lisa Brown is looking to unseat the number four Republican in the House, Kathy McMorris Rogers. And then in the eighth, we have Kim Schreier, who's going to be facing off against Republican and and, uh, I hasten to point out Trump delegate Dino Rossi. So let's start with the Schreier campaign. They are going to be hosting two canvases every Saturday, one from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. and another from 12 p.m. to 4 p.m., as well as one from 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. on Sunday. This weekend, they are going to be in Snoqualmie on Saturday and in Issaquah and Sammamish on Sunday. If you are looking to make some calls, they host phone banks every Tuesday and Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. and Sundays from 4 to 7 p.m. at 1320 Northwest Mall Street, Suite E, as in Edward, Issaquah, Washington. And uh, that is starting next Tuesday, which is September 4th. We're going to have a link to all of that on IndivisiblePodcast.org. So check it out there. Next is the Lisa Brown campaign. Now, they have been doing a ton of door knocking. So if you want to get involved there uh, in the Spokane area, they are doing some canvassing on Friday and Saturday 
On Friday, you can meet at the DCCC Field Headquarters at 4.30 p.m. and then on Saturday at 2 p.m. The address for that is 1507 East Sprague in Spokane. And at those same times, 4.30 p.m. on Friday and 2 p.m. on Saturday, teams will also be meeting at Indaba Coffee, and that is at 1425 West Broadway Avenue. Across town at Airway Heights, there is a door-knocking team meeting Friday, August 31st at 4.30 at Airway Heights Library. That is at 1213 South Lundstrom Street. Then in Medical Lake, people will be meeting on Saturday, September 1st at 2 p.m. at Medical Lake Public Library, 321 East Herb Street, or could be Herb Street, sorry, Spokaneites. I I don't know how that uh, street's pronounced. And, of course, we're going to have a link to all of that, plus future events on the website for you to check out. Uh, And finally, down in Washington's third, on Saturday, the first volunteers will be out for Carolyn Long at the Vancouver Farmer's Market starting at 9 a.m. And following that, there are going to be two shifts for canvassing, one starting at 10 a.m. and one at 1 p.m. They are both meeting at 2114 Main Street. Oh, and uh, one final word about the campaign there. Congresswoman Jamie Herrera Butler has not agreed to debate Carolyn Long's. So the campaign is asking constituents to write letters to the editor for the Longview Daily News and for the Columbian. So there you go. That's going to do it for this week's canvassing calls to action. And that'll also do it for this week's show. For links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. You can subscribe to the show there. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. And the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to my guests, Ron Fine and Summer Stinson. Special thanks to Alexandra Permiani. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.